you to turn to Luke chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 21, a very familiar parable. It's entitled, The Parable of the Rich Fool. I'm, I'm doing a five-week series on, on God and money, and not all about giving. It's about a variety of things, since money, we relate to money, money relates to us every day of our lives. Hear God's word, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray together. Our Father, you tell us the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word, your word, stands forever. Open our eyes now that we might behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus was the master teacher, and like all master teachers, he used repetition. As you read through the gospel, sometimes you will think, haven't I read that somewhere else? Because he was repeating lessons about faith and, and, uh, and following him in a variety of contexts. And he did it with a large proportion of parables, which are very unique to the gospels. We don't find hardly any of those anywhere else in the Bible. What is a parable? It is a teaching tool. Uh, it relies, though, on the listener to connect the dots in it. Haddon Robinson, the great professor of preaching and the great preacher himself, notes that a parable is not an illustration. In a sermon illustration, the preacher, like myself, may give an abstract truth and then try to clarify it with some sort of story. A parable doesn't do that. A parable is something you toss alongside the truth. You have to, the listener has to make the connection. For example, if I say to you, well, even monkeys fall out of trees, that's a parable. But if I make the connection, even monkeys fall out of trees, even experts make mistakes, then that becomes an illustration. But if I leave it up to you, the listener to make the connection, then it's a parable. It's something like poetry. It's something between the hidden and the obvious. That's what we have in the parables, and especially in this parable, where it has one main theme, and that is greed or covetousness. And Jesus tosses this parable alongside it and wants us to make the connection. Now the context, since we didn't begin reading in the earlier part of the chapter, let me just tell you, a huge crowd has gathered around Jesus to listen to him. 
and some had walked from very far away to hear his teaching. And he's been going through some very weighty and serious eternal matters. He's been talking about God knowing everything about us and a coming day of judgment and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We find that in the opening 12 verses of chapter 12. Now, amidst his teaching on such eternal matters, this man, someone in the crowd, said to him, almost abruptly, like it doesn't fit into the context of the conversation, teacher or rabbi, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. The question seems out of place. Uh, we might even say it was rude, given the, what the subject matter had been leading up to this. So in a sense, he changes the subject from the eternal matters Jesus was talking about to the mundane, which was an inheritance that had been left to him and his brother. So he's concerned about this inheritance that it had been left, and it was to be shared apparently between these two brothers. We assume the one he's referring to is older, and he's younger, and apparently the younger one was not satisfied with the division of the estate. And now he's taking advantage of what the Old Testament had taught that call for disputes among heirs to be settled by a rabbi. You can find that in Numbers chapter 27 or Deuteronomy 21. So it was normal. If you had a dispute over something like this, you could go to the community rabbi, and that person was supposed to help, in a sense, be a judge in that situation. So that part is very legitimate for him to direct this to Jesus, and he begins with, Rabbi, tell my brother to, to do this. Well, on a side note, let me just mention this. One of the books I put, on, put in the uh, letter that went out to the congregation yesterday, and we will put a bibliography on the, on the website for First for All, but one of the books is Ron Blue's book entitled Splitting Heirs, giving your money and things to your children without ruining their lives. Now, I can tell you as a pastor, some of the earliest questions I began to be asked, or really they weren't questions being asked, they were comments being made by older people, were concerns about inheritance and how they were planning to leave that, and just lacking wisdom. It is a subject that's rarely talked about, especially in the church. When I came across that book some time ago, uh, it was due to a debate between Ron Blue and James Dobson, if you know those names. The James Dobson had the perspective that parents shouldn't really leave anything to their children. And Ron Blue disagreed with him. Ron Blue was a financial advisor out of Atlanta. And they did a program on the radio about that, and out of that came this book. So it is loaded with common sense, and biblical wisdom. So I commend it to you if you have any questions about that subject. Back to the parable. That was a parenthesis there. So Jesus responds, and he says back to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? It's not exactly a cordial response from Jesus, but Jesus himself, though he knew more than the rabbis, had not gone through the official formal steps to become a rabbi. So he wasn't technically a rabbi. He was in the general sense of being a teacher, but he wasn't a local rabbi that had been given that kind of local authority to settle disputes. So he says to them, he points out now that the issue 
behind the question. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So what is the man's issue behind his issue? It's greed. It wasn't really how the will was being or the inheritance was being uh, divided. It was that he was greedy. So like with many of us, we think we have questions about God or about other things. We may voice those questions, but a perceptive person can say, you're not really asking that question. You've got an issue over here. It's the consuming desire to have more and more. That's what covetousness is. I've appreciated the two questions from, that we read responsively early, earlier about covetousness. Covetousness is a consuming desire to have more and more. It's living as though the accumulation or enjoyment of those possessions is what gives meaning and purpose in life. Jesus warns against it, as we see here, for this reason. It diverts us from the real meaning of life. That's what he's going to say. Now, you and I, no one is accustomed to viewing life from the perspective that Jesus presents here. We tend to view wealth as morally neutral and at worst. Uh, and, and typically, it, we don't, <laughs> let me put it to you this way, and I'm going to use an illustration, not a parable. If you were presented with two options, here is uh, heroin, and you can take this, or here is more wealth than you've ever imagined. The normal person, probably all of us, would look at these two and say, this is dangerous. This can ruin your life. This can wreck your health. No question about it. This can destroy families and relationships. This can kill me. But we look at this and say, oh, this is good. This is desirable. There's no, uh, we're drawn to this. Does that make sense? And yet, Throughout the New Testament, especially, Jesus continually gave warnings about wealth. And the warnings are not uh, things that we obviously see. I think we, we, it is a temptation we eagerly move toward. We see temptations or feel temptations to break the other commandments, and we realize this is not a good idea. It's not a good idea to steal. It's definitely not a good idea to commit adultery or to commit murder. But to be fabulously wealthy, it's like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. And yet Jesus gave equal warnings to that. Why? Again, not because uh, material possessions or, or money or anything like that is evil. It's the love of it. It's what covetousness can do to our hearts. So Jesus said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's what he says here. Jesus says this because it directly confronts the outlook of most of us. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, he wrote, have you ever wondered why God in his infinite wisdom included a law against coveting in his top ten commandments? It is kind of strange, isn't it? We say, do not murder. Oh, yeah, I understand that. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie in court. Do not bear false witness. All that makes sense. Then the 10th, do not covet. What? How does that fit if you step back from it? He goes on to say, perhaps God knows something about what leads to stealing. 
about what leads to jealousy, about what leads to murder and to war. Covetousness is the cause of a person wanting himself for himself what God in his goodness has graciously bestowed on someone else. Covetousness always wants more. But Jesus says life, real life, does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. So covetousness is dangerous because it aims your life in a direction which is opposite to the way things really are and what really matters. So within that context, he tells the parable. If you wondered if we were going to get to that, yes, we are. It's a very brief parable. About this man, he uh, has a, a bumper crop. He has to tear down barns to store uh, more and more and more, and, and then he, his life is taken suddenly from him. Now, what can we say about this man? A few observations here with the brief moments we have together. First, this man lives as though there is no God. I had a friend that, uh, that put their kids in a kindergarten, and they had first been at a church kindergarten at a, at a Baptist church, and then later moved over to a public school. This was in Arkansas when we lived there long ago. And they had been in the school for a while, and he asked his son one day, he said, how do you find the two different? And he said, well, they never talk about God at this one. I think that's what this man was. They act as though there is no God. At, God is irrelevant. And, and that's what this man did. He, he may not have been an atheist, but what, he was what we call a practical atheist. There's no acknowledgement that his crops have come from God. Or what might God have him do with that? Or how might God direct him to help others with the, the wealth that he had come come upon. So he's unaware there's a God. He's unaware of the source of his wealth. Uh, how did he become rich? It says the land was so productive. Proverbs teach that it is the blessing of God that makes one rich. Proverbs 10, 22. The apostle Paul asked, what do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. But this man is oblivious to the source of his riches. He is unaware of God's hand in his wealth. I have a friend that her dad was a neurosurgeon in Florida. And before he became a Christian, she told me he would taunt other doctors that would pray before their surgeries. And he would say they'd be washing up and getting ready to go in and do surgery. And he'd look over and one of the surgeons would be praying and he'd say, what are you doing that for? That's why I went to medical school. This man might have been the same way. I... I my farm, look at how productive it is, thanks to my going to farmer's school. <laughs> what shall I do, he asked. He's unaware of God's hand. He doesn't seek counsel. He, he doesn't turn to uh, friends for input on how might this wealth best be used. He's entirely on his own. Matthew Henry makes the keen observation that I'll paraphrase. He says, worry and anxiety is the common result of having an abundance in this world. It is the common fault of those who have an abundance. So secondly, he's unaware of any higher use of his wealth than his own personal consumption. Note how he says over and over, either I or my. My crops, my barns, my goods, my soul, in verse 18. He's not thinking of others. He's concerned only with self-indulgence. So he fails to see that his wealth is a gift from God a gift to which he is a, a manager and is to be faithful. 
So at the conclusion, he says, I'll say to my soul, you've got ample goods. Okay, I've saved enough. I've reached the point. I've finished, I've finished what I set out to do. I am set up now for years to come. I'm going to relax. What is he to do? He's going to consume that wealth. Third thing he's unaware of is his own mortality. He assumes he has many years to live, many years to come in verse 19. And with everything safely in the barns, he can relax and just enjoy himself. And he looks forward to years of pleasure. He plans to live out his years enjoying what he has attained. It's natural for all of us to think we have plenty of time. Hopefully we do. Uh, in, unless you are in a rare case of, of a life-threatening disease where you've been told there is no hope, you have X, you know, you should set your affairs in order because your, your time is limited, we assume that we will be here for a while. Uh, but we all too, too often hear stories of, say, older couples that have planned out their supposed golden years and saved for retirement. I remember a neighbor of ours where I grew up had built a, a house they had dreamed of. Boom. And then one dies of a heart attack just suddenly. You, these are common stories. Maybe they're common now that I'm getting older. Uh, but, and, and you think, boy, they certainly didn't plan for that. But everything changed in a moment. And it's not just a problem for the elderly to think long term. It, it, youth do the same thing. They live as though they are immortal. Do you know that w during World War II, the armed services found that the best fighter pilots were 18 years old? more so than 21-year-olds. Do you know why? Because by 21, a young man typically begins to realize he has, he's mortal. But an 18-year-old, death it does not enter the picture. They think they're going to live forever. So they intentionally trained 18-year-olds. But the fact is, we don't know if we have another day. Do we? I, I was taught as a young pastor to to preach as though this is your last sermon don't think that you have um, years to address certain things so are you ready well, each of us could die uh, in an instant all it would take is a small embolism in the brain and, and and we could be gone second this man meets reality uh, Jesus says you fool God said to him fool what is a fool in the Bible? A fool is someone who lives contrary to reality. That's how the Bible defines a fool. Someone who lives contrary to reality. It's a builder who ignores the laws of gravity. It's a farmer who ignores the season. It's anyone who ignores the nature of things. And the, the greatest fool is the one who ignores the reality of God through conscience and creation, at least to know that there's, there's an intelligence behind this. And so the fool, in this case, this man has in, ignored two crucial facts. One, that he was mortal when Jesus said that God said, tonight your soul is required of you. The man's completely unprepared. There is no second chance. The Bible does not teach second chances. It, he was not ready. And Jesus wants you to be ready. And that's why you're here today is another opportunity to put your trust in him. Secondly, this man didn't realize he was accountable. This night your soul is required. 
It conveys the idea that life is a loan from God and we are to steward it and he's going to take it back. Our lives are borrowed from God. You realize that? God loaned them to us and it's God who calls him a fool. The really foolish thing was the rich man's confident assurance that the future was in his control. He's not condemned for being wealthy, okay? There's nothing here that, that says he was um, sinful because he had wealth. The wealth is not condemned. How he made it was not condemned. It, apparently, he was an honest business person. There's no sense that he stole this from other people or, or was dealing with something illegal. He's a fool, not because he's wealthy and not because he believes in saving, but he did so without thinking of the most important thing, which was his soul, and being ready to meet God. Life is uncertain. So I conclude with, with how to be ready. Jesus in verse 21 says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? To lay up treasure for oneself is just to accumulate wealth for the sake of the now, for the present. Because one day, you and I, like the man in the parable, will give an accounting before God. So later in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves purses which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To be rich toward God is to be rich with the things that please God. It's to lay up treasure in heaven. To have treasure in heaven, we need to have Christ in our hearts. We cannot do this on our own strength. We cannot live for him with our own strength. You and I need to know that we are weak and only by the power of his Holy Spirit can we even begin to recognize the reality of this life and that we will give an account before him. Is to put our trust in Christ as our redeemer, is to submit ourselves to his lordship. The Apostle Paul put it this way, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So are you ready, ready to give an account? We all one day will. You don't know when it will happen, neither do I. We may never see each other again. And I want to meet the Lord knowing that on that day, I challenged you to be ready. You remember the name Charlemagne from uh, Western civilization history, if you took that? We even had that in Alabama, so I... I uh... <laughs> he was the emperor of, looking back, it had a different name, the Franks and so forth. Uh, but it was Western Europe, the Holy Roman emperor of Western Europe in the 8th century AD. Uh, he was a professing Christian. He certainly wasn't perfect, if you, if you know about some of the things that happened under his leadership. But 180 years after his death, about the year 1000 AD, the officials, for some reason, I don't even know why, decided to open his tomb where his body had been placed. 
So after 180 years, they opened up the tomb and they found an amazing sight. There were riches and treasures, but also was his throne. And on the throne, as they came into the tomb, they saw his skeleton. Seated in the tomb with a crown on his head and the gospels, a copy of the gospels was on his lap and his bony finger was on this verse. What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Charlemagne had given those instructions because he knew that he would give an account and his trust must be in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, these are weighty subjects. Um, covetousness, facing you, giving an account. We pray our trust would be in Christ. Thank you that you have given us the privilege to hear the gospel and to respond to it. May you open our eyes, open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the deaf that we might hear your word and our trust would be in what Christ has done, that his perfect record would be attributed to us as he has taken our sin upon him and paid for it on the cross. And we pray in his name. Amen.